Welcome to the session. This is Changing Platforms. Um, so we're going to talk about the move from traditional media to new media, which everybody up here has done. Um, next to me is Rebecca Frankel from Little Dot Studios. She is uh, head of distribution and strategic partnerships, and she's formerly of Channel 4 and ITV. Um, next to him is Conrad Withy. He is the CEO of Pop Shack, and he is formerly the president of Warner Music. And then we have Christopher Scala, who is the founder and CEO of Tada TV, a preschool specialist digital content company, and formerly of Guinness World Records and Hit Entertainment. So I'm going to have each of them introduce themselves a little bit more in detail. Rebecca. Um, okay. Hi. Um, yeah, I used to run digital projects for broadcasters. I spent five years at Channel 4 working on documentary projects, which were public service, and they could be very innovative. And then I moved to ITV and worked on more commercial entertainment properties, like X Factor. Um, and I'm now at Little Dot Studios, where I run, I've been running kids for the last year. So Little Dot Studios is a new age distribution company. So we make content and we distribute it. And we work with a lot of production companies and broadcasters in the UK to help them learn how to use YouTube and create a bespoke strategy for them. So we help with managing user-generated content and harnessing sort of fan engagements with shows. And we also set up official channels. So we've got about 150 YouTube channels, um, which span across kids, entertainment, food, and we're doing about 250 million views a month. Of that, 80 million views are kids. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's what we're doing. Um, oh yeah, actually, so I've got one little video to play. So we have, um, when we work with, with kids, chat, when I meet new kids clients, um, the way YouTube works is it's a search engine. I can't just put something up and make it popular. People go to YouTube and they ask to watch something that they want to see. So when I'm working with new clients, I look to see what the demand for their show is already on YouTube. Um, and we can also then monitor what, what people are already uploading. And one of my clients is Billy McQueen, and we have Baby Jake. And Baby Jake is just phenomenally popular on YouTube. And I just had a look this morning at this clip I'll show you, which has only been up for about three or four months, and I've realized it's about to hit a million views. That's just what we love to do. So, so I just wanted to sort of play that as an example to show kind of how how we work with content. So um, we see YouTube as an amazing marketing platform and people are going onto YouTube to search for the Baby Jake song. So, you know, why not provide it for people? It deepens their engagement with the brand and it drives them to, you know, kind of watch long form in other places. So we kind of, we do little clips and we do kind of compilations and we do online exclusives. Um, yeah, All right. so that's what we do. Conrad? Uh, thank you very much. So uh, my traditional background, as Stephanie said, I I'm spent the last eight years before 
um, starting Pop Shack, running a label at Warner's called Warner Music Entertainment, which was a, an international, tr very traditional record label. Before that, I've been in uh, the film and television and uh, home entertainment business for previous 12 years. So, um, very traditional up until a year and a half ago. And Pop Shack is a YouTube multi-channel network uh, focused on uh, music, unsurprisingly, and a teen audience as Stephanie calls them screen ages. It's uh, largely, I would say, well, officially it's 13 to 24s. I think really most of them are faking their accounts. It's probably as low as nine to um, uh, 16 is our core. Uh, and what we're trying to build is a network of talent that's emerging on YouTube, um, a different generation of talent who've found a fan base through the platform. And we try and help them uh, develop their careers and go on to whatever a music career is going to look like in the next five, ten years, of which we're sort of working that out. But what we do know is they don't really like paying for music and they don't really understand ownership. So we're trying to figure out what a, a new model looks like in a, in a world where it's streaming everything on demand uh, for this young generation. So we, are, we got, are we showing clips still? Yeah, okay. So I have a little two-minute thing which just give you a bit of background on the business. My two teenage daughters, Conrad, are, are huge fans of Pop Shack. They absolutely Great. love it, so um, thank you for that. Uh, I'm a refugee from the traditional kids' content business, um, and I am at the start of a journey. Uh, so really, this week is the, the first time that I've been able to say that um, the company that I've set up with Will Brenton and uh, my business partner, Meyer Hackack, has been fully financed by Sandbox Partners. So I'm sort of here to outline um, what it is I hope to do 
over the next four years. And that journey really started um, several years ago when I and Will and just about everybody else that I talked to in the kids' content business um, were very unhappy with where the content funding model was, how the business was operating, their relationships with the broadcasters, how the broadcasters were behaving, and what was happening to the creative community. And until the, the tax credits came in, there was a real sense of, of loss um, and a kind of disheartening of spirit. And that seemed to me to be very, I guess, sad, is there's no other way to say it, when there used to be such a vibrant creative community, particularly in the UK, but also in the US. So I thought long and hard about how do you reinstitute creativity at the heart of the kids' content business? How do you do that in the face of a completely broken funding model? How do you do that in the face of seeming despair with respect to the relationships and the structures, particularly the power structures in our business? And I decided that there had to be a way through. I didn't know what that way through was. And then I got a call from Will one day. And he and one of his oldest friends, a guy called Justin Fletcher, who some of you may know, were sitting around. And Justin was coming out of his deal with uh, the BBC. And he wanted more creative freedom. And they said, look, we know there's this platform called YouTube. We don't really know a lot about it. Christopher, we know that you've been engaged with it at Guinness World Records. You know, what can you do? And I put the phone down and I thought, actually, I can do an awful lot with that. So I went to my business partner. We spent 12 months building a very detailed model of what a new content funding uh, and launch business would look like, primarily using um, the YouTube platform. And around about Christmas time, we went out and we started speaking to a whole bunch of different kinds of investors. And in the end, um, Sandbox stepped forward, and very happily for me, and agreed to fully finance the whole thing. So what I will be doing with Will and Meyer is, over the next couple of years, launching 30 original content, preschool-targeted YouTube channels. And what I want to hope to be able to do is to show the creative community that there is a different way of doing things, that you can be as equally creative for a 30th of the budget that you would normally have been given to do a show, but you can have a freedom of approach and a passion and a direct communication with your audience that you've never been allowed before. Awesome, thank you. Um, I just realized I didn't actually introduce myself. My name is Stephanie Wallstrom, and I used to manage Tiny Pop and Pop Girl, and I left, full disclosure, to work with Conrad at the MCN. And I'm currently freelance, because I think um, I'm straddling a bit of both, because I still miss traditional television. Um, I know I had an aha moment. My passion is older girls, and I don't feel they're being served very well on television, which is why I went to YouTube, because I feel that's where they are. Um, did any of you guys have one moment where you're like, this is just not working anymore traditionally? Um, well, I went to ITV uh, about three or four years ago to help them with their YouTube strategy. And it was just after the, um, do you remember the Subo moment on X Factor with Susan Boyle? Oh. And the video got over 100 million views and nobody made any money from it. 
So there's a complicated rights agreement between ITV the broadcaster and Fremantle the production company and YouTube the platform. And um, there was just complete disruption. You know, broadcasters want to push people to watch things in walled gardens where they're watching VOD with the uh, really high CPMs, YouTube's less money, but that's where people are. And I'd been working on, um, I guess, traditional TV shows doing like digital support. And that's kind of when I realized I was shifting away from being in like the programming teams to like to, to digital and just looking at so many different issues to do with rights and legislation and fan engagement and basically putting the uh, the viewer in the center spot. It's not about what's being produced and telling people, it's about listening to what people actually want to watch and how they're engaging with shows and allowing them as fans to breathe and dictate the content. Awesome, Gunnar. Yeah, there was definitely a clear moment or a few moments when uh, in my last year at Warner, we would have people presenting talent to us constantly, as you'd imagine, for, for record deals. And uh, increasingly, people were coming in with talent they'd discovered on YouTube who had three, 400,000 subscribers. They would nearly always have about 10 times the fan base of the, the major label talent we'd already signed and were trying to find fans for. So there was this kind of weird thing that people would come with this ready-made fan base, but you'd look at them as a, a label and you'd say, well, they're not actually particularly good at singing, and they don't write songs, and um, they don't look great. And all the, all the kind of sort of box ticking that we used to do in terms of, well, who are we going to sign, didn't really fit. And, and yet, so these guys would be, you know, we were passing routinely on, on this, this talent, and it just struck me as insane that, you know, we probably turned away two, three million subscribers worth of, of, of music fans. Uh, it just seemed all wrong. Uh, but I did, you know, I knew for sure they weren't going to fit into Warner, and they probably weren't fitting into Universal or Sony either. So this was a neglected group of, of artists. And it just became apparent there needed to be a different kind of business. We needed to work out a model that wasn't about selling albums, which was still the, and still is the, the, the you know, the focus of, of those labels, or trying to get people to consume albums on a different platform in a different way, but it's still the sort of same end goal. So what, what did that new model look like? So that was, you know, it's taken a while to figure that out, and, you know, we still are, but it was definitely that moment of, okay, it's not going to happen here, so better step out. And um, I was laughing when he asked the question because, you know, I think I've died of a thousand cuts over the last 15 years in, in, in struggling in the kids' content business. Um, and, this, and I'm particularly talking about rela relationships with broadcasters. And, and if there are broadcasters out there, I am likely to offend you from this point on for about the next five minutes, and I apologize. <laughs> um, but there's actually there's, there's nothing I can, I can do about it. So in one 24-hour period, I was sitting at Guinness World Records, and I, and I was dealing with a major US kids-dedicated broadcaster who um, had asked us to take Officially Amazing off the market, subject to agreeing the, the acquisition price and subject to a US audience testing. Um, we'd agreed the price. We'd taken it off the market. They'd done US testing. The testing we knew had gone through the roof. And that morning, I got a call from my distribution partner to say that they were, they were reneging on the deal for no reason whatsoever other than that they could. And as it turned out, there was an internal dispute going on within that broadcaster, and we were sacrificed so that somebody could make a political point against somebody else. That same day, I received an email from a, a, the only major British 
kids broadcaster to say that if we did not finance the third show of Officially Amazing, that they would stop broadcasting it. Now, we were finance partners in that scenario. And I was told in this email that I had to be grateful for the fact that the then commissioning editor was supporting the show. So I looked at this email and I thought, this is completely wrong. A, the situation with the US broadcaster I found to be utterly unethical, but utterly typical of the way that a lot of them behave. And then in the relationship that, that I was dealing with in terms of this email, the idea that a commissioning editor who had been given the show on arriving into their job should be described to me as being supportive and, and by their good graces, allowing what was a hugely successful show for this broadcaster, um, I, I just, again, I'd had enough. Um, I, I, I guess I am um, slightly emotionally unstable. Uh, I, I feel things very deeply. I get upset at stupidity, particularly my own, but particularly other people's. Um, and I found those two situations brought to head. And at that point, I think emotionally, I took a decision in my head that I would, if I could, I would never have anything to do with a broadcaster again. Um, that I would create, somehow create a life for myself doing kids' content where if I could cut out the broadcasters, I would make it my mission in life <laughs> to do so. And, and, I, and I say this publicly, and I know I will pay a price for saying it publicly. I have not met a single producer of kids' content over the last 15 years who does not feel the same way. But they cannot say it. They cannot say it publicly because they will be punished um, for saying what is a truism in the business. So how uh, does the funding model work then? Because most of us are used to the traditional funding where they give you money and then you do it. And that seems like the easiest way but there's so many complications, and even that doesn't seem to be working. So how does the funding model, how do you get the money for YouTube? Because they're not really. OK, so what I, in, I can only speak about my particular case. So, so I spent a lot of time thinking very hard about the economic um, landscape within which YouTube operates. So we had to do a lot of retrofitting, a lot of understanding how the ECPMs work, how seasonality works, how that money flows through, how, what your likely viewing curve is going to be. And ultimately, if you cannot make content for less than $500 a minute, you cannot make money in that arena. Okay, so that automatically, most people will go, well, you cannot make content. You cannot make original content for less than 500 pounds a minute. Most people in this room cannot operate, cannot conceive of operating creatively within those constraints. But the fact of the matter is there are already people out there who are. Um, and I have already worked out how to launch two fully CGI animated original content series for less than 370 pounds a minute. All right? So it can be done. If you accept the liberation that comes with understanding your economic so-called constraints, then in speaking to any creative person that I've met over the last year, what I've said to them is, we have spent the last 70 years being told by broadcasters what to make, who to make it for, and how to make it at what quality level to make it at. And that has meant that we create stories with characters and motivations and long-lasting scenarios. And we think about creativity in a very specific, structured, narrative-driven way. You've got to turn all that on its head 
And what you've got to think about on YouTube and about this kind of new content model, the new creativity, is you want, you, you want to think about what's, what, me, what is passion for your target demographic, um, and you need to feed them their passion in a very intimate way. And once you get that through your head, actually, the constraints, the economic constraints fall away. They no longer becomes relevant. So I go back to a show that I did at, at um, HIT called Mike the Night. And at the time, everybody had high hopes. I don't think it's been as successful as anybody thought it was going to be. And there's very, there's very obvious reasons. And in retrospect, I've analyzed the obvious reasons. So you have a show which you believe is going to be very passionate for boys. It's about, it's about a, a kid who's a knight. Um, and he's going to fight the bad guys. So most kids age four or five are going to sit there and think, that's quite cool. I quite like that idea. And, and he gets to be the defender of his mom and his dad. And again, at a certain age, boys kind of go to their mothers, I'll be your, your hero, right? So there's, there's lots of things that, that automatically gel with your target demographic. So first thing is you go to the broadcasters, oh, you can't have a sword. <laughs> okay, you can't have a sword. So that automatically cuts the passion level in half. And the second thing is, oh, and, and by the way, you can't have any antagonistic characters. So therefore, you've now reduced the passion level by about 80%. And, 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 and therefore, the show, it's a perfectly good show, but it doesn't, it doesn't do what it says it was going to do on the tin. And actually on YouTube, because you don't have the idiocy of people telling you, oh, I don't think you can get 52 stories out of that, and you know, we can't have any you know, antagonistic, whatever that is. Um, you can go directly to your audience and you can give them what you know or believe that they are going to respond to. Well, do you think there's any sort of problem with that? Like I know, so you work on um, mostly preschool stuff because I know when I was working at Tiny Pop, we would get American shows and then like, or Peg Plus Cat and I love that show. It's my favorite show in the entire world. I would watch it on my own, same with My Little Pony. But we had to cut an entire, like we had to cut an entire episode of My Little Pony because they were talking about cider. Um, which is non-alcoholic in the United States, and we had that problem with Zoe 101 as well because it's non-alcoholic U.S. and it's alcoholic here, and they cut the whole episode. And we had a lot of bronies emailing us pretending to be seven-year-old girls upset about it, but it was clearly a 24-year-old man. Um, <laughs> but it made me wonder, I'm like, you're, we're cutting the story out of it, and YouTube allows you to keep the story. So do you find that you create, it's a different content creation process? Um, and like, um, Rebecca, do you ask for a different type of content from Mirror? Do you ask for extra content? Is there extra yeah. stuff you can put online that yeah. maybe wouldn't make it through the very uh, tight net of broadcast? Well, we work in a slightly different way because we do, we do generate original content, but not yet in the kids' space. So I'm talking about repurposing content, and I'm working around the rights which are available. So. The, so I'm not putting up full-length episodes, but people want to watch long form. So the way that I work is in a really collaborative way with the producers. So we're working on, say, Bodge and Octonauts at the moment, and I work with the producers to make 35-minute reels of character best bits or find the themes which inform how the episodes were plotted out earlier on. And, um, and they're going down really, really well because it's exclusive online content and it's deepening the engagement of fans who've already watched the shows and want, and want more things. And you can, do, you can do really fun stuff. You can do a lot more, um, you can tie it to a lot more seasonality um, and you can do little themes. I mean, it's really liberating not to be like 52 episodes. I 
always try to start with like let's think about what can we do in six episodes or over a week or once a week for a month and then and then you can iterate you can see how people react and which bits what they liked and Conrad do you ever find because your audience straddles what Ofcom says is kids and not kids and I believe strongly that just because somebody is 15 and under they they watch something it's not true they watch whatever they feel like watching and it doesn't matter their age um, do you find that you're censoring yourself at all, or are you mindful that pe kids are lying about their age and creating? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very different for us because the old way in music was you'd sign with a partnership with an artist, and then the label would make all the content in a sort of in this traditional way, funding it all. That would be the official content, and you know the artists would sort of sit back and be told what to do. Whereas We've found that really doesn't work on YouTube, and uh, we've worked on stuff together where we thought they were great uh, ideas, and, and no one turns up to watch them after all that effort. And what really connects is authenticity, and it really needs to come from the artists themselves. That's kind of why they're on our radar, because they've, they've managed to connect with an audience. So the idea that we would then step in and change that and tell them, oh no, you know, now, now you're, gonna, you're working with grown-ups, we're going to re-educate you on what really works. We, we, you know, that really has to stop. So that we do need to be mindful of what they're doing, but we need to let them continue to be creative and continue to drive their own channel. That's their, you know, they own the media platform that, the, that they're building. And we need to let them keep discovering the audience. And, and as you were saying about iterating and watching what works and doing more of that, um, it's, it's, you know, it, they are making stuff, I mean, it's slightly different, it's not animation, but they're making stuff for, basically for free, because they've all got an iPhone and they've all got a laptop. So the, you know, the barriers to entry are gone. So now it's just about, almost quite an analytical approach to this. You know, what, what are people watching and when? What are they sharing? Why did they like that? What comments did they leave? So the censoring seems to come from within the community. And, and people will do things that aren't clear mistakes and maybe offend people, and they quite quickly find out that was a bad move, and they'll lose subscribers or they'll, you know, they'll have bad comments, and they'll stop that. So it's a constantly evolving thing, and every single channel is completely different. We have 150 artists now, and they've all got different approaches, and they all work for different reasons. So, yeah, it's quite a fascinating process, and, and all of what we thought we knew before, we have to leave at the door when you go in. Um, and one of the biggest problems, so when Conrad and I worked together, we'd make this amazing content and either the problem was um, because they're essentially teenagers, they're like, yeah, 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 I'll do it, and then they don't do it. Um, and then I <laughs> immediately called my mom, I'm like, I'm so sorry for being a jerk when I, for like most of my life, because you realize that they work on their own schedule and they're going to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And you can advise them, but at the end of the day, if you make them do anything, it's very obvious yeah. and it really comes off as inauthentic. So what you have to do is um, try to pry them to get to where you want to go and make it seem like it was their idea because at the end of the day it has to be theirs. But we would make great content on these big channels and nobody would watch it. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any marketing tips because you know YouTube was saying to us most videos get under 10,000 views and it's actually you know you see these big creators and these big numbers and that's a very 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 small percentage of the stuff that's actually on YouTube um, and they talk about advertising and social and it's a really 360 thing so can you guys talk about how you help people watch it or do you just rely on search? It, it depends what space you're in. So, I mean, last year I looked after a lot of um, very big female lifestyle vloggers. 
Um, and we had an original content channel called Daily Mix, half a million subscribers. It was one of YouTube's original commissions. And you'd labour and make these amazing pieces of content and then you'd do a film with Tanya Burr or Zoella in and it would just, you know, get... So there's a bit of a thing in YouTube production where if you pay for talent, you get views. And there's some complicated maths that go on about how much their fees are and whether you'd make that back by the fact that you would be getting 10 or 100 times more views. In the kids space with what I'm working on, it's, it's, it's tricky because it's, it's preschool, so who, who's looking? It's, it's the parents, really. Um, and so we, I mean, we pay a lot of attention to YouTube's algorithm and it's search, and search is title. And then people come to watch something and then they tend to watch something else and recommended video is, is much more related to tags. So you don't do any like traditional spot advertising or um, the YouTube ads or anything like that? We do do some YouTube ads. We've got a kids aggregate channel called Wiz and we did a bit of a campaign to launch that, uh, marketing specific shows that we had on it. And it was really good to get people in and then we got them in and then they liked the content and watched more. So they stayed, because is it worth, because I know that um, it's a bit complicated to find out how much you're actually going to spend on that because it's about views and splits. It's Yeah, it's quite complicated. Um, but what we found was for, e for every view that we kind of bought through an ad campaign, people stayed to watch two or three more videos. So actually we could divide the ad spend by two or three. But it's, it's like a complicated art and science with real-time bidding and... And Conrad, do you find your... Yeah, I mean, our, our channels now, I think, get something like 50 million views a month um, across them. And we've never, we and the artists have never spent any money on marketing them. It's, it's all entirely been through the search. And so I think there's two approaches we have to it. One is there are 10 fundamentals that, that we, we've learned from YouTube and we've applied to the music entertainment space. Uh, and they're really useful in terms of making content that's likely to, to be found. Um, and they also, you know, just content that will connect with an audience and engage. So it's things like how do you build a conversation into the, pr the program? How can you have guests in there so you can invite in another creator with a big audience to, to cross those audiences over? How do you uh, obviously instill passion into it? How do you have a clear identity for your channel that stands out from everything else? So all good stuff around making compelling content. And then secondly, it's actually all about what Sean was saying, I think, of YouTube's a kind of central hub, but these kids are everywhere else first. Um, they come back there, but you need to use um, every other social media platform, particularly Snapchat, as you said. At the moment, Snapchat stories are something we're getting our heads around, and they're quirky and, and um, changing the rules again, but they're in incredibly popular and engaging. So how do you repurpose that, that content into the, onto these other formats and making sure you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter, Vine, Snapchat, or whatever else comes along, because they're your marketing tool that will drag, drag them back to see the kind of core content. So at the moment, it's entirely been marketing through socials and using the fans to, to, to do that, uh, as opposed to any paid spend. And do you have any idea how you're going to... Uh... Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, it's what I call funneling, how you funnel audiences towards original content, because the original content is your riskiest spend, right? This is true of traditional broadcasters as anything else. And, and marketing is a sort of the answer to, you know, mitigating or minimizing that, that risk. Um, 
222 TV, who is an Israeli company, who are one of the big success stories in the preschool arena and, and were an inspiration for me. When I spoke to them last year, you know, one of my first questions was, okay, so you know, you've got all you've got coming up to a billion aggregated views. They probably toss off anywhere between two and, and four million dollars a year. Uh, in revenue, their total production spend over the last four years has been about $150,000. So if you look at, at what their risk is versus what their gain is, that's kind of where my light started to go on. And then I said, okay, so you know, you've got these incredible views, so how much have you spent on marketing? And they very sweetly looked at me as though I was completely stupid, which in many ways I am, and they, they, they said nothing. We have spent nothing on marketing. Um, no traditional marketing, no social media, nothing. Um, so either they're incredibly lucky, so I said, oh, so you've just been incredibly lucky. They said, no, we just followed the YouTube playbook. And, and I said, well, what's that? And, and anyway, I found out what it is. And YouTube themselves, Greg Dre said, he's, he's amazed at how many people on YouTube don't even know about the YouTube playbook. And even if they do know about it, they don't use it. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. But we spent a lot of time thinking about how do you funnel audiences in? So we have a bunch of what I call funneling strategies, which is really looking at what parents are already looking for on YouTube. And then, of course, the other thing is Justin Fletcher. Right, so he is an equity partner in, in the business, and um, he's already searchable. He's hugely well known. Okay, it's UK based only, but you've kind of got to lift yourself up into the algorithm somehow, right? It's kind of you know bootstrapping. How do you bootstrap? So that's essentially how we're going to bootstrap. Um, I will just say in there, sorry, just um, if you are looking to um, work on YouTube, YouTube's actually very supportive. Incredibly supportive. They give you all the information you could possibly ever need and mm. more, um, and they're very open with sharing that. You just have to get in touch, so you might want to get in touch through the spaces, but I, like, um, they have a space in London where you can shoot stuff for free if you have more than 5,000 subscribers. I walked in there and I would sit down, I was like, this is free. I'm so, I was so used to paying so much for yeah. worse yeah. studios. Um, and not only is it free, but they tell you exactly, like, well, they provide technicians word, and camera technicians, people and but, mixers and all that. And it's green yeah, screen, yeah. and they provide sets sometimes. And, but it's also, they give you a presentation that says, you follow this, and you will be successful. And it's 100% true. And I think that some people are just trying to wing it, and the, they are their biggest ass, and they really want to help people. Yeah, so I, mean, I would 100% recommend approaching them and just asking for their 10 fundamentals at minimum. Yeah, and it, uh, it goes beyond that as well, and they'll train your team. So once you're a YouTube partner, they have online training courses which are absolutely superb in terms of rights management, in terms of audience development, uh, and your, your whole teams can become YouTube certified, which I highly recommend because it, it, everyone's then got this basic knowledge of content strategies and and um, and finding an audience, it's, it's quite incredible. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of it is hard to find, you have to it really is. seek it out. I would though just point out, like the, the playbook, is there's amazing resources at YouTube um, and there's an amazing wealth of knowledge. It, it, it's a hard thing to dip into casually, it's yeah. actually quite a big right. commitment and the algorithm is changing all the time. There's, there's always this algorithm, and the and algorithm's like changing. They and always then, talk about the algorithm as though it's a lot. It's, it's kind mean, of sitting there. Yeah, I mean, the way that I see my job is I'm in touch with YouTube on a daily slash weekly basis, and we're hearing what the algorithm's doing, and then we're feeding this back to the client, and then tweaking what we're doing, which is interacting with the algorithm. So. YouTube takes a lot of time to get your head around, and especially if you've got complex rights management issues, 
you need to make a decision about whether you really want to be very, very fully committed to doing it or whether it is better to outsource because it's, it's like all social platforms. Don't do it casually. Don't have a Facebook page and post once a week if you feel like it, either engage properly or... Or don't do it, and that's actually very true because a lot of people will post something on YouTube and say, oh, it didn't work. But you haven't tagged it properly, you haven't done the thumbnail, you haven't done what they say you do, and you can't really write it off. But if you do do it, like I t I'm YouTube certified, and that course took me forever um, because it's very complicated. But now, once you know, it makes everything else you do much easier, um, and, and then you have a chance at success at least. I think, yeah, yeah, one other point on funding content, which we've learned in the last year and a half, is that. At the share of ad revenue that comes through from banner ads and pre-rolls is very rarely going to be enough to fund the content you want to make. Um, in music, it's particularly hard because you're usually sharing uh, any of that revenue with uh, someone who's written a song or you know there's other, there's other rights owners. So I think one fundamental thing as well is to start working out how you're going to connect with brands and advertisers who will get involved in your content and be a sponsor of it or, uh, you know, weaved in through product placement or, or some other way that a brand can be part of it. They're all really desperate to get onto YouTube and work out how they're going to connect with a young audience on there. And it's really complicated for them because they're used to just buying ads on traditional broadcasters. So all the same pain that people are feeling from working with broadcasters, advertisers are also feeling around how they find the audience. So. We've been really encouraged by the conversations with agencies, and, and they're very I think, enthusiastic to try and find partners, uh, and they will fund content increasingly. So, um, but it's another commitment that has, has to be made to having a sales team uh, who yeah. will meet with them. And you can also refigure how you see it, because I think a lot of people jump into YouTube, and they're like, oh, wow, I could make loads of money from the ads to fund my content, and then they realize that there's quite complicated models in, structure, um, models in place. Um, but if you reshift your mind about what YouTube is, it's like it's the biggest video search engine in the world. It's your best marketing device. And so when you're talking about, oh, I'm not spending anything on marketing, well, actually, the production and distribution costs, that is your marketing costs. So I think in this like fragmented world where people have got new broadcasters, if you're building a really deep engagement with your fans on YouTube and you've got all of these subscribers, like you're saying, oh, this person's so attractive, they've got 100,000 subscribers. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future, Netflix or Hulu are like, oh, you've got an established brand, you've got this many engaged fans, okay, I'm gonna give you this much money because I know you can make the content and I know you're gonna bring the audience to it. I really hope to get to a stage where if that ever happens, I can happily say to them, I don't need it, thank you very much, go away. <laughs> oh, that would be lovely. <laughs> Because ultimately, um, if you've yeah. built something very successful on, on YouTube, you're, you're actually aggregating viewers in numbers that no broadcaster has ever been able to you, dream of. You do, but just to s uh, YouTube is in a very privileged position at the moment because it's its its own player. It sets all its own rules. Yeah. So I don't think we'll get into a big conversation about money at the moment. Yeah. But one of the things which I think YouTube is you're really right. good for is build everyone. Yeah. Everyone calm. I'm going to make some money out of everyone. Yeah. And then later down the line, you can use YouTube as a great tool to drive people to buy your DVD. Oh, no, absolutely. And I mean, there's, there's absolutely that. I mean, that was the thing. Our business model is predicated on the fact that, that we don't have to barter any rights yeah. to get our content out there. 
so that if it is successful, and I, and I don't mean to, to be flippant about you know, a broadcaster approaching us at a, at a later stage, if that should ever happen. Um, the point is that, that if you understand the, the economic landscape, you cut your cloth accordingly, um, there's whole, there are a bunch of different ways of getting your IP out there yeah. in front of your, your audience, such that you don't ever have to go back to the yeah. traditional route. And that actually, it's a, we built a whole different retail model into this as well, such that we don't have to get the approval of Walmart or Target or Toys R Us or whatever uh. in order to feed the demand of something that might become popular. So my business partner loves the word disintermediation. It's a great word, I love it. So we're disintermediating the whole broadcast landscape and disintermediating the, the retail landscape as well, so it's not just a content play. It's about actually creating IP and getting it directly to consumer yeah. across a whole range of different ancillary exploitation platforms. So, yeah, we, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to see if anybody had any questions at all, because I think it's gonna start flashing at me. Shout. All right, I will, hello. Um, My name is Chris Banks. I'm half of Banks and Wagon. We're music composers. Uh, we've worked with Justin Fletcher on his shows for CBeebies. Um, really interesting talk, um, very um, inspiring. My worry uh, as a composer whose um, business model is based on a uh, upfront fee and then royalties is that YouTube royalties are fractions of pennies versus um, traditional broadcast media. So how do you uh, attract um, people used to that traditional model to uh, wanting to work on YouTube, or do you actually not want to? Are you, me? Yeah. Uh, me, okay. Um, well, we're working with several different music composers, so um, yes, I think you, you need a million views to get 200 pounds worth of, um, what is it, performance rights, yeah, right, so that's, that's kind of how that works, and you're right, it's not a lot of money, but um, music is very important, particularly in preschool content. So part of my every channel budget, you know, actually has a relatively decent fee for the, the composer. Um, and then the, the, the performance rights royalty is split 50-50. And, you know, when you get to the kind of the two to two levels of, of, of exploitation, um, of, of viewing, uh, aggregate viewing, um, actually that revenue stream is pretty decent. So I guess as a music composer, you, you can't just have one client who works solely on YouTube. You're gonna have to mix up your clients a little bit. I can't say that I can replace for you as a music composer your other traditional clients. I can't, um, and I'm not pretending that I can. Um, I suppose I'm more addressed towards the, the show creatives in the sense that, that what I hope to be able to offer them is, is a way of, of working whereby they can retain much more control over their creativity and talk more directly to their audience without having somebody who has absolutely no experience telling them what they can or can't do. All right, the light's blinking at me. I don't have any more time for questions at all, do I? One more question. All right, let's go to the back, maybe. Hi, thank you. One of the most interesting presentations of the whole conference. I just wanted to ask you, you're all talking about YouTube, and is there any potential for YouTube to become rather too powerful because that's your main source for getting out there? I mean, you, you, get, you ditch the broadcasters as your gatekeepers, 
and then you become quite dependent on a very large US organisation. I mean, they're you know they're being really helpful right now, but are there any yeah. downsides to that? Well, the, the the internet, the promise of the internet was this wholly democratic world where everybody could do anything, whatever they wanted to, whoever they wanted to, right? It's bullshit. And very, very quickly, what has emerged are these monolithic entities, right? Because they um, have gathered up network advantages. It's a very well understood theoretical thing. It's very, very true. So, you know, you have Google, YouTube, you have Amazon, you have Apple, and I can't remember a handful of Facebook, you know, which may or may not survive. Um, so, yes, these are monoliths, right? Um, with YouTube, I would welcome a major competitor to YouTube because you'll find that the advertising rates will change and they will have to change their share of the advertising revenue. But in the meantime, um, the, the issue of the, the content funding model was there had to be an alternative to the broadcast whereby you could aggregate audiences in sufficient numbers such that it would attract the advertisers. Because ultimately, we only make content because the advertisers allow us to. They fund the content outside of public service broadcasting, right? So I will deal with whoever at the moment has aggregated the audiences. Right now, that's YouTube. If in the future it's somebody else, I'll go fucking work with them. I don't care, really. Because <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the thing about YouTube is all they do is provide the platform. Yeah, I was going to say that actually YouTube is not heavy-handed at all. They'll let you do whatever you want, um, and that's what's very nice. And they're very yeah, clear no, about that. Completely, yeah. They, they let they, they, they are not editorial. Yeah. They are just providing a platform that you uh, put your stuff on, and then all of it is up to you. Yeah, and I think you do need to reach, it's a marketing platform. People are already, if you're making stuff, putting it up there, or it's just providing an avenue for you to put your, your stuff up. And I think you need to look at the advertising revenue as this incremental revenue at the moment, although it is changing with like Google Preferred. They're, they're creating new ways to monetize premium content mm. at better rates. But I think you do need to be careful not to evangelize size and stay platform agnostic yeah. Yeah. and you respond to where your audience is we made a show for YouTube that hit a, a sort of 20 to 35 year old female audience it was about well-being and I run syndication as well and I, I work with AOL on which is a distribution network for publishers and it sat much better there because it had a an older female skewed audience so you yeah, I so think it's absolutely inevitable. Someone will come and challenge. It seems impossible right now, but someone will come and challenge. Every five years, it, it changed completely. They're already being competing. I mean, Vessel's launched and is causing them a lot of problems, attracting over their premium talent and windowing it uh, on Vessel and paying quite significant amounts of money to to bring that talent over. Something else will come up. Vimeo's trying to do more quality experience. So you know, I, I you know, you're right. It's about owning the IP, having the relationship with the talent, and then you move wherever it goes. <laughs> All right, everybody's waving at me. i got to stop. Um, thank you so much for coming. I think I'm supposed to... Yeah, basically, they just want you to leave. <laughs> <laughs>